Welcome to Hot Topics in Kidney Health, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Join us as we highlight the latest in kidney research, bring you up-to-date news in kidney care, dispel myths, and answer questions to help people with kidney disease or a transplant live well. Many kidney disease patients often face financial hardships, such as having to leave a job or struggling to pay for medications. Applying for or maintaining insurance may also be overwhelming and may create challenges with access to care. In today's episode, Dr. Isaac Aqua talks about his recent research into the financial impact on people with chronic kidney disease. He'll be joined by guests Beth Witten, a social worker, and Charles Pecoraro, a dialysis patient. Hello, everyone. We're here today with Dr. Isaac Aqua. He's an MD and specialist in public health and issues of how it affects people and their insurances. He's done studies that are going to give a lot of information to us. And uh, also with a very detailed specialist, Miss Witten, who has done many hours in many different locations, working with patients through multiple medical situations. And they're here to lend their knowledge and their background as to helping people out that were very much in a situation like mine, which was chronic kidney disease that just came on suddenly. It changes everything in your life and affects you financially. And that's what this is all about is how has this and will this affect you financially? And what can we do through researchers of the National Kidney Foundation and uh, the advocates in assisting you in making sure that this can be a less strenuous situation, a much better financial situation for you. Dr. Aqua, your research is centered on the financial impact on people with chronic kidney disease. Can you share some of the highlights of your research identified? This study um, used a national data set called the National Health Interview Survey, and that surveys adults in the U.S., Now, what we did was we took the data set from 2014 to 2018, and then we tried to look at financial hardship among individuals with chronic kidney disease. Now, the main findings of this study, basically of the 2.1 million people who had chronic kidney disease, almost half of them reported financial hardship. And among this, almost half of the people with CKD, among this number, about one-fifth of them reported that they were unable to pay their medical bills at all. So this is quite a serious problem. So that was the first leg of what we did. Now, what we went on to do was then to look at the factors that were related to people reporting financial hardship or inability to pay their medical bills. And what we found was that the factor that was strongly related to inability to pay medical bills or financial hardship was actually lack of insurance. So people who lacked insurance had four times the odds of financial hardship or inability to pay bills. So that was the second leg. Now, the third part was wanted to find out the consequences of financial hardship, because we know that when you are facing some financial problems, there may be some consequences. So we looked at four things, financial distress, where you are worried about things related to money, you know, about retirement and all of that. The second thing was what we call food insecurity. Then we looked at cost-related medication non-adherence where somebody is on medications, but for some reason they are skipping the medications or they are delaying filling prescriptions or they are taking fewer medications than prescribed by the doctor. Now, the last thing we looked at was delayed or foregone care due to cost where somebody, you know, you are sick, you need medical care, 
but you don't even see care at all because you know you cannot afford it. Now, we noticed from our study that people who reported financial hardship, they were more likely to report high financial distress, cost-related medication on adherence, and delayed or foregone medical care due to cost. So basically, this is just like a summary of what we found in our study. So in your study, did you find anything that was surprising to you at all? One thing that we found really surprising was the fact that among the individuals who reported financial hardship, actually about 80% of them were insured. So then we asked ourselves the question, is it that their insurance was not adequate enough to cover the cost of the care that they receive? Is it that the insurance is inadequate? to cover the cost of care that they receive. So that was one of the findings that we, we found surprising. Your uh, study really hits close to home with me because I fall into several of those categories. I was one of these individuals who always believed that he was Superman. He didn't need insurance. He didn't need to do all these things because I had my plan all laid out. I had built a business and was relying upon the money from that business to retire on and sell the business for a, quite a bit of money and then retire with that. But unfortunately, when you wake up one day, not not knowing what's going on with your body, and then you go to the doctor and he says, you've got no kidneys, you've got a problem and uh, your kidneys are, are quickly dying and you end up completely changing your life plan. It changes the life plan for myself. It changes the life plan for my family. When I finally did get into the system and the insurances were there to be covered, I found out that it took even a delay in time to get those things covered, which almost cost me my life. I had a seven-day delay between the time that I was very, very sick, and I had to have lab tests done, and the insurance covered those lab tests because I was actually transferring from one state to another, South Carolina to Florida, and they wouldn't cover it. And they said, no, we can't do your test because the insurance isn't approved yet. And I said, I have to have this test. And I debated with supervisors and and argued till I was literally blue and couldn't get it done and had to come back a week later to get the test done once everything got reapproved back through the system. And by that time, I had to be put in the hospital immediately. I was so sick, probably two days from death. Then things finally started taking off with the insurance, but it took quite a while to do that. And the second place that it surprised me was when I was having these tests done, I had to have a fistula, which, of course, I'm sure Beth knows and you know what a fistula is. It's this port they put in your arm to give you dialysis every day like I went today. It takes three months for a fistula to mature. So you have to first get approved by the insurance company, then go get the fistula surgery. Well, there was a two-month delay in getting the heart catheter out of my heart and putting the fistula in place because insurances weren't in place. And there was a big debate back and forth as to what insurance was going to cover or not. It took a two and a half month delay before I could actually have the heart port taken out and the fistula put in and allow time for it to mature, which was a very long delay. And it even created one medical catastrophe with that because one day the heart port just wore out and it popped out of my chest. So, of course, that created the situation where I had to have the heart port put back in and then go. And we still had to wait the time to get the fistula done. But now everything's in place and working. But it, there were two delays due to insurance. Beth, for those people who have recently been diagnosed with CKD and currently working, what can you recommend to help them keep working? 
Charles, your your story is pretty awful. And, you know, I know that you're not alone. As a social worker, I worked directly in dialysis with patients that had CKD or kidney failure, were on dialysis or had transplants. And I heard horror stories throughout that time. My first recommendation is if you have a job, try to keep it. Do whatever you can. As you noted, once you lose your job, your financial situation kind of takes a dive and working provides steady income and may provide better and less costly health plan than getting something on the individual market. Dr. Aqua did talk about the large number of people that in spite of having health insurance, they still have out-of-pocket costs that are unaffordable for them. It's unfortunate that in the United States, the richest country in the world, we don't have health care that people can afford. I'm not going to go off on that tangent. So I'm going to give you some tips on keeping a job. First of all, it's important that patients who are working, actually any patient, report their symptoms to their doctor so those symptoms can be treated and can be treated early so that people don't have to quit their job. And then rather than quitting work, it's important that people understand whether the company that they work for is large enough to offer the Family and Medical Leave Act where they can take time off to go to doctor's appointments or go to dialysis clinic appointments or get home dialysis training. And you can find out about the FMLA on the Department of Labor website, which is dol.gov. They have an alphabetical list that you can just click on F for family and Medical Leave Act and read about it. Some states have their own Medical Leave Act laws, and so you can Google your state and see if it does. Because in-center dialysis is the least work-friendly treatment, you know, my suggestion to patients is to consider home dialysis. If you start on home dialysis, you start in the training program, within the first three months that you're doing dialysis, Medicare can back date to the beginning of the first month of dialysis. So in a case like yours, Charles, if you had known about that, you might have been able to get Medicare to start right away and you wouldn't have had all those delays. So those are a few tips that I can offer to people that are working. And Beth, for those who are unable to work, aren't able to keep their jobs, Bill, what other tips would you have for them? Social Security has some programs to help people who cannot work. There is a book called The Red Book uh, that is on the ssa.gov site. If you go to ssa.gov slash redbook, you can look at the work incentive programs and look at the qualifications for the two major disability programs through Social Security. One is called Supplemental Security Income, or SSI, and that's for people who have limited work experience and little assets and income. And it will pay $794 a month if the person is self-supporting, if they're not getting help from other people. There is an offset to that if people are getting financial help from others. There's Social Security Disability Insurance. Checks are based on your work history. And in 2021, the average check from SSDI for a disabled worker was $1,277 or $2,224 for a disabled worker, spouse, and children. 
And if you're on dialysis or you have had a recent transplant, you're more likely to get disability because Social Security views kidney failure as a severe impairment. And if you've got CKD, you're not yet on dialysis or, and you haven't yet had a transplant, you may still get it if your lab tests indicate that you have a severe enough problem. And that's all in that red book that I was telling you about. We are bringing best-selling authors face-to-face with their readers. Join us on Saturday, November 13th for the National Kidney Foundation's 33rd Annual Authors Luncheon to get an exclusive opportunity to meet some of the most recognizable names in literature, including Walter Mosley, author of The Awkward Black Man and Devil in a Blue Dress, Mary Roche, deemed by the Washington Post America's funniest science writer and author of Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, Elizabeth Strout, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of O. William and Olive Kitteridge, and Amar Tolls, author of A Gentleman in Moscow, Rules of Civility, and The Lincoln Highway. Join us from the comfort of your home and listen as these amazing authors share the stories behind their stories, all while making a difference for kidney patients. Join us Saturday, November 13th. For tickets, go to kidney.org backslash authors today. That's kidney.org backslash authors. Dr. Aqua, what further research would you like to see based on what you've learned from your current research? I think one of the things that we were sort of limited by in our, in our study was the fact that this study was in, in research balance. It's called a cross-sectional study. So we cannot, for instance, say A causes B because both of them were taken at the same time. The, the information was taken at the same time. That is, chronic kidney disease and financial hardship were taken at the same time. So what we would want to see going on is, you know, have what we call longitudinal studies that are looking at how people who have chronic kidney disease, whether they really have um, these issues. That's the first thing. The second thing is really to look at financial hardship by CKD stage. It is something that we were not able to look at in our study because for the data sets we used, we didn't have CKD stages over there. So all we had was, okay, do you have CKD or you do not have CKD? So we want to see, okay, does financial hardship worsen with CKD stage? Those are two of the major things we want to look at. The, the third thing is to find out at the policy level also what can be done or, you know, on a large scale to reduce the burden of financial hardship on individuals with chronic conditions, you know, such as CKD. I know there are resources out there, there are interventions that are out there, but how well do they work at a large scale to make sure that these problems are tackled on a larger scale. Those are some of the things that we would want to either explore or, you know, other researchers also explore. I know in my particular situation, I was at stage five before I was even aware that I was at stage. Beth, you may be able to back me up on this, is that it affects your thinking. It affects how you think. There's so much, so many toxins build up in your body and into your brain. It's just I called it getting wonky. I I was not able to to think properly. I was not able to communicate properly. I was not able to do what I normally knew I was able to do, but I wasn't able to. Starting to deal with insurance companies and gathering all that information. So my number one is write everything down and verify it at least two times before you move on to the next step. Because if you get one thing wrong, it could delay you weeks. And that's a real problem for people who don't have insurance or are struggling in this situation. You have to be able to keep everything organized in notes. And that's the, 
have somebody in the family help you, have them be the person who is going to be more the opinion or the communication point when you're first ill like this, because if you don't, it's costly. I've been on dialysis since February of 2020. And I've just went through on August 26th, my third round with SSI. They still have not given me an answer at this point. Third round. And I had to hire attorneys, of course, to go through the third round, which cost even more money because now a percentage of that income that would be helping recoup some of what we've lived through for the last 18 months is going to be taken to, to, to pay an attorney. So document everything, get on it quickly, as Beth was saying, as fast as possible. And uh, that's going to really help you out. For others like me who have struggled with getting the insurance and through this information, Beth, what else would you suggest? breaks my heart to hear that Social Security has not found you to be eligible for disability because having kidney failure, being on dialysis, or in the first year of a transplant is listed in the Social Security, what they call the blue book that talks about disability, the things that lead to disability. It's right there. It's presumed. Disabling. One of the other but, things that I, I wanted to say is this, is that there's this particular form, and you may know the, the golden form, form 8824 or something, that you have to get filled out and you have to bring it to your nephrologist and your nephrologist has to sign off on it and then it has to get sent in. Well, they, because of the pandemic, none of the offices were open. And right. they, swore, they swore up and down that they never received it. Well, then finally, after my second round, they found it in the computer systems, but it was never matched up to my medical records were never matched up for the second hearing. There's another form that the dialysis clinic is supposed to send to Social Security that is the medical documentation that you've started dialysis. It's called the CMS 2728. That is what Social Security uses to look at whether you're also eligible for Medicare, because on that form, it says when you started dialysis or when you got your transplant, it says when you started at the clinic that you're at now, whether you did home training or not, when that started, when that finished and so forth. First of all, if somebody has SSI, if they didn't have much work history, didn't have and don't have much income or assets, when they have SSI, they in most states are automatically eligible for Medicaid. Some states you have to apply, but you'll get it. So Medicaid is the state federal funded program that helps people that have limited income. All but 12 states have expanded Medicaid to cover people with income less than 138% of federal poverty, which is not a lot of money, but it still helps those people. You can contact your state Medicaid officer in California, it's called Medi-Cal, to, to find out whether you're eligible for that. You can also go into the healthcare.gov website and it will uh, walk you through whether or not you're eligible. Most of the people that are on dialysis are eligible for Medicare and you need to have enough work history to qualify for it, either under your own work record a spouse's work record or a child can qualify under a parent's work record. So if you get SSDI checks and you don't have kidney failure, there's normally a 24-month wait to get Medicare. But when you have kidney failure, if you do in-center dialysis, there's a three-month wait for Medicare to start. But if you start a training program for home dialysis 
or you get a transplant as your first treatment, then Medicare will start the first month, the month that you, you got your transplant or the month that you started dialysis. All you have to do is start a training program within those first three months. And original Medicare allows you to go to anybody that accepts Medicare. Medicare Advantage plans that are sold by insurance companies can limit who you see. I'm, I'm a big proponent for original Medicare, although there's some people who would do well with Medicare Advantage. You can contact Social Security about applying for Medicare. The Medigap plan that helps to pay the out-of-pocket costs in Medicare, you can get those if you're 65 and older. There's a federal law that requires companies that sell those plans to sell a Medigap plan to those who ask for it within the first six months after they get Part B of Medicare. And if you're under 65, your state may or may not have regulations that require companies to sell those plans to people. So that would be an important thing to find out. They don't work with Medicare Advantage plans, so that's another reason why I'm a big proponent for original Medicare. And you can go to the medicare.gov website and they have an option for you to look at Medigap plans. The VA can help people that are veterans. If you have Medicare as well as VA help, you can choose which you want to use for different things. So like if you have the VA and you have Medicare, you can go to a clinic that contracts with the VA and the VA will pay for it. Or you can go to a clinic that accepts Medicare, does, doesn't have that contract with the VA, and you can get Medicare to pay for it. TRICARE helps people that are military and their families. Indian Health Service helps members of organized tribes. Most everybody has heard about Obamacare or what really is called qualified health plans. You can find that on the healthcare.gov website, and you have to be in the U U.S. legally be a citizen or in the U.S. legally to get that. If you have limited income, you can get help to pay premiums and help to pay the out-of-pocket costs. And if you have a marketplace plan, when you could get Medicare, this is important for people to know because I don't think everybody knows this. If you choose to keep your marketplace plan and later on you want to get Medicare, say you want to get a transplant and you want to have immunosuppressant drugs, anti-rejection drugs covered by Medicare Part be like boy, when you sign up for the Medicare um, at that point, you may pay a higher premium because there is a penalty for not enrolling in Medicare when you're first eligible for it. That's one of the things that we had to look at setting up ahead of time. Yeah. Well, and you know, the thing that will save you is if you have a job-based plan, you say, I don't want to pay that premium for part B and I'll just take part A. That's when you have to pay a, a penalty. But you could instead say, because you're in a group plan that's job-based group plan, you could say, I don't want to take either part A or part B. And you can waive that until the end of the, there's a Medicare secondary payer period of 30 months from when you're eligible for Medicare. If you've got a job-based plan, you can wait until the end of that period to sign up for Medicare. You don't have a premium penalty and you can have it start like the next month. All this is so confusing. And I will say that one thing I wish that there was that I think it could help patients is if like, especially larger physician groups, nephrology practices, if they had a social worker on staff to help patients 
to understand some of these things, to help them keep their jobs, to help them find the insurance resources that they need. There's just so many things that a, that a social worker could help people do that I used to do when I worked in dialysis. Yes, we have a social worker in the clinic that I'm in, and she's been a wealth of information that was good here locally. But when I went up to Mayo Clinic to find the qualified to get on their transplantation list, and we had to set up ahead of time the anti-rejectuary drugs and the get all that approved financially so that mm. when they do call me up with that magic call and say the gift of life is here and somebody's been nice enough to, to donate a kidney, it has to be done ahead of time in place. So that's a, a, another part of learning this whole thing, this whole, this whole bit of information. It's a lot of yeah. information. And if you have limited income, there's something called Part D Extra Help that can save you money on premiums and on the drugs. And you can contact Social Security. You can go on the ssa.gov website if you've got internet access, or you can call their 800 number, which is 800-772-1213 to apply for that. Most job-based plans have drug coverage, and most times that drug coverage is at least as good as Part D. Your company has to let you know that. Your insurance company, through your job, sends out a letter once a year to people, and it says that your plan is at least as good as Part D, and that's called creditable coverage. Some drug makers have programs to lower costs, but they've also got qualifiers. And sometimes they'll help people that have Medicare Part D, and sometimes they won't. But you can find information on that. There's a website called medicalassistancetool.org. And that is under, it's called Pharma, which is the lobbying arm for the pharmaceutical companies. So they've set up this website. So it's medicineassistancetool.org. And then some sites like GoodRx and Blink Health, both of those are .coms, and RxAssist.org have databases that will tell you about drug discounts. And then there are some charities that will help with drugs. You can find those on a website called NeedyMeds.org. And if you look under healthcare savings, you can find those programs. So many of those things are critical absolutely critical for being able to get the stuff paid for, the medications paid for, to get the steps in place so that when you do get that transplant, that you are going to be able to get those very expensive anti-rejectory drugs so that your body will not reject the organ that has been put in. Because as you mentioned, some people try to lower the amount of the prescriptions that they're supposed to take just to save money. And in reality, they could be costing themselves their lives. Yeah, that, or they or they could lose the kidney transplant, which is oh, terrible. Yes, it's terrible. Don't want to have to go through multiple transplants. In closing, uh, Dr. Aqua or Beth, what else would you suggest that people could do? There's a website that people might not know about called benefits.gov, which is a government website. It has a section on there for categories that will provide information for people who are having issues with housing, food, childcare, education, employment, etc. So you can look at that website. There's also another website or phone number that you can call the United Way. It's 211.org or you can call 211 and get a hold of your local United Way and they can tell you about resources in your community. It's it's really scary for people. You can tell just how awful it was for you, Charles, 
to have a chronic disease and not know how you're going to pay for it. As you said earlier, if you've got a health plan, know what it covers and talk to people, write down what they tell you, write down who told you, write down the date that they told you that. And that way you have documentation that you've done what you need to do to find out what you need to know so that if somebody comes back on you, let me tell you my notes. I talked to Mary Smith on this day and this is what Mary told me. And then a lot of times they record these calls and they can go back and find it. The other thing that I want people to be aware of is if you've got Medicare, every state has what they call a state health insurance assistance program, or we call them SHIPS. And you can talk to a counselor there that can help advise you about health and drug plans. They have been trained by CMS to help advise people. And so you can call 1-877-839-2675 to find out how to contact your local SHIP. Or you can look up state health insurance assistance program in Google with your state. You should be able to find it that way too. Your final thoughts, Dr. Aqua? Before we go, I think one thing that I move into the U.S. realize is how complex the U.S. healthcare system is. The very high cost of healthcare. And I think it's something that everybody knows about, but I don't know whether it's something that is being solved. So just... The little work I've done in this area just makes me know that these things are real. It's not just things that you just hear. And Charles has shared his story. Beth, I think the last time we spoke, you also told us a little bit about it. So these things are real. And just thinking out loud and wondering if we could find solutions, you know, both from the level of healthcare workers, healthcare systems, that is hospitals, drug companies, and even at the government level, find ways of tackling these issues, you know, relating to healthcare costs in general to reduce the cost of healthcare in the U.S. And I think it's doable. As a rich nation, I don't think it is all right, you know, to have people not being able to afford things that are very basic and things that in other countries, which probably even have lower GDPs, mm-hmm. are able to, people are able to afford and we cannot afford it. So that's just something I wanted to say that I feel mm-hmm. like if we all put our minds to it, we can do it. It's, it was nice talking to all of you and having to share the research work that we've done. And I'm looking forward to more opportunities like this to listen to these stories and get to learn about the resources that are out there. Thank you very much. You know, one Thank thing, you. Dr. Aqua, for the future, for your future research, Yes. one thing I would be really interested in knowing about is does it make a difference whether people are employed or not? You said that people had financial difficulty, even if they had insurance. Was that because they had Medicaid or was it because they had a marketplace plan and it had high out-of-pocket costs? What was the reason why? And I know that particular database, I think it does have information about employment status. And I know what you were talking about when you said it doesn't really say what level of kidney disease you have. It just asks whether somebody has diagnosed you or told you you had kidney problems or something like that. I can't remember the exact wording, but they could have anywhere from, I just found out I have a slight 
problem with my kidneys to, you know, I'm on dialysis. So it could be anywhere along that continuum. Thank you very much, Beth. It's something that we'll look into. I think it's it's very important. So we'll look back into our database and see if it's something that we can look at. Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be yes. real cool. I'm a big home dialysis enthusiast and vocational rehab enthusiast. And I do think if it's possible for patients to work, dialysis clinics should do all they can to try to accommodate that, whether that's putting patients on later shifts, having evening time dialysis, offering nocturnal dialysis, finding out from the patient whether they want to come in early in the morning, whatever, to try to help people keep their jobs. Because if you lose your job, your income drops significantly. And then you've got all these added bills and the stress is just horrible. This compounds the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate all your information today. I look forward to hopefully talking to you in the future. Thank you, too. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Today's shout out goes to Luz Baquero a kidney patient and a recent transplant recipient who also volunteers her time as a member of the NKF Health Equity Advisory Committee that works to ensure that all people living with or at risk for kidney disease have access to the health resources they need. As an immigrant, Luz has experienced firsthand what it's like to not receive the health care you need simply due to your citizenship status. Congratulations on your transplant, Luz. We want to hear from you. Do you have comments on this episode, suggestions on future topics or guests? Is there a kidney hero in your life that you'd like to honor? Email us at nkfpodcasts at kidney.org. Make sure to subscribe, review, and share our podcast with others. Thank you again for listening. We hope you join us next time. Until then, from all of us at NKF, we wish you good health.